Welcome to the Build the Future podcast. My name is Cameron Weesey, and I'm your host. I've always been fascinated by the ideas and sentiment that drove American culture in the 1960s with the space race, a culture galvanized to dream about the possibilities of tomorrow. Whether it's food, transportation, cities, or anything else, it was this cultural mindset rooted in optimism, a mindset where people were compelled to build things. And I quote JFK, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. It's this desire to build and to dream that seems to have been lost and is something we're here to bring back. With Build the Future, we're here to promote the ideas and stories of those who see how the future can be better and promote their plans to get us there. It's our mission to get you to dream about the possibilities of tomorrow, to dream about the future that you want to live in and inspire you to go build. Today, we're talking with Deval Energy, the CEO of Vukasan. At Vukasan, they're developing the technology that will enable us to 3D print metal just as easily as we print plastic. In doing so, they're developing a future where we're able to produce materials faster and more effectively, specifically materials that will be required for us to go travel the galaxy. Let's jump right in. Tell me about the future of building with Vukasan. What's the vision? The goal of Vukasan is just to make it easier to build parts out of metal. So the goal is to, in the short term, is to build a, um, a 3D printer that can print metal like plastic. So you can think of it like through a nozzle, layer by layer, and generally it's gonna be cheaper than like the alternative machines that are really expensive. We don't have any lasers or anything like that. It's just much simpler. And the goal is to make it really easy to just iterate in hardware and make changes and not have to rethink your entire manufacturing process. One, what sort of parts are you imagining being printed? And then how are companies doing it now? So I'd say that you kind of have to lend yourself to specific markets that, you know, will take those to have like huge advantages from, from additive manufacturing. So this will mainly be aerospace or like manufacturing tooling. Generally, these are industries where you're going to have, you're not going to be making like tons of parts. It'll be kind of lower volume. Um, generally, you need higher performance out of those parts. And so you can't really develop a manufacturing tool line to cut down costs or anything like that. You're usually making like fewer parts each year. Uh, a lot of these will be like machined or done on a CNC machine or like water jet cut rather than developing like really super optimized machine tooling to do your manufacturing. I would say that within aerospace, like aerospace is like probably the big use case for metal printing right now. And that's like the, industry that's kind of adopted it a bit more than others. Like a friend told me or asked me like, what's the point of 3D printing? If like, what are you going to do? Like 3D print like Swiffer handles or something? <laughs> like, <laughs> what's the point of that? You have to kind of think of, okay, where's metal printing going to be actually useful? And aerospace is usually focused on cutting weight for different parts. And generally they're willing to pay a bit more. Um, so it's kind of lend itself to the economics of printing a bit better. How does this compare to something like 3D printed or like carbon fiber? I think carbon fiber is, you know, excellent material, uh, very lightweight, very high strength. It's still expensive, but the cost is trending to be a bit lower over time. But there's still a tremendous demand for, for metal. And so I don't think metal is going anywhere anytime soon. Carbon fiber is also very difficult to work with. It's very expensive to work with because it takes a lot of just manual labor, setting up the molds and laying things out and doing all that. So 
carbon fiber is pretty cool. And then, you know, it's great for like formula one cars or, you know, maybe like high end sports cars and you'll see it in aerospace as well, but it's not going to be used for, uh, I think it'll be difficult to use everywhere, um, you know, in the short term. And especially once you're dealing with like high temperature things, like, you know, like rocket engines, you know, no one's going to make a carbon fiber, like a rocket engine anytime soon. Right. Right. Oh, wait, so the idea is you could print an engine with Vucasan. You'd be able to print like engine parts, most of the parts maybe on the printer. There's some things that you'll have to do with, you know, other manufacturing processes, but yeah, I think that that's like the goal is to be able to make it easier to print things like that. Um, generally larger parts rather than smaller parts. So we want to be able to print things that are like at least the size of like a soccer ball or bigger. I think that's where like additive manufacturing is like quite valuable. If you have the right additive manufacturing technology that can do it though, I think a huge advantage with additive manufacturing is being able to just like consolidate parts. So like generally like you have to think of like what decision process does someone have to go through for like determining is this going to be one part or two parts that we have to like bolt together or weld together or something like that. And generally those are going to be limited by like the geometry of the part or like the limits of the machine to make that part. And generally with additive manufacturing, you can make more complicated things. So you can make one giant part that like kind of eliminates all the like bolts or fasteners and in that kind of like assembly. And what you'll notice is like generally like your fasteners, like the nuts and bolts that have to hold something together. It might be like 5% of your bill of materials, but it'll be 70% of the like labor cost of manufacturing that thing. So by, by printing it all kind of compiled or assembled, it completely eliminated that cost. Yeah. You reduce the labor cost significantly. If your printing process is kind of like automated. Yeah. How does it actually work? Walk me through the, the printer itself. How does this work for metal? You can kind of think of like 3D printing. It's almost like a hot glue gun that can move around and with really high precision and layer by layer. So you're able to melt this material, um, lay down one layer and then build the next layer on top of it, the next layer on top. The way a traditional like 3D printer nozzle works is you have like a nozzle and you run power through it and the resistance in that material will basically heat up and the heat has to transfer from the nozzle into the print material in order to melt it. And then it like exits the nozzle and it's laid down. What I'm doing is I'm still using a nozzle, but we're using something called induction. So it's the idea of basically you can induce current um, into your material directly. So you can produce heat directly in the material rather than having to rely on transferring it from like the nozzle walls into the material. And so that makes things a lot faster and you're able to still control the temperature uh, very precisely. Yeah, because I'm looking at the print head on, on your website. I'm, I'm most familiar with the 3D printing of little trinkets, which yeah, melt the material and then lay it down. So in this case, it's not necessarily melting it. It's using kind of a different, different method. Yeah, we're still melting it. It's just like, we're just finding a different way to heat it. And like one of the reasons why, like why you could ask yourself, like, why hasn't this been done before? Like, why hasn't anyone like made a 3D, why can't you just take like an existing plastic printer increase the nozzle temperature and like use that to print metal. There's gonna be several problems, but like the big problem you run into is you're kind of like rate limited thermally by like, if they'd be able to heat this thing to melting point and continuously like heat the metal. And that's very hard to do when you're relying on heat to transfer from the nozzle walls into the material. And that becomes like your rate limit. So induction kind of gets over that like rate limit problem. 
who else is working on this? What's the, why is this not already the way that we are manufacturing all of our metals or a lot of our metals or materials? It's partially because uh, within manufacturing, a lot of these things are just hyper-optimized. So uh, people have like built out like very specific solutions that are like really cost-effective for the specific part they're trying to build, at least in high volumes. That's why you, when people talk about economies of scale, what it means is like someone's invested a lot of money into developing the manufacturing tooling that can like build that part for dirt cheap. So I would say that's like one big reason. But if you think of like within additive manufacturing, I mean, I'd say there's like maybe 50 or so companies that are like doing various things with metal, maybe a bit more, uh, but like 50, like bigger ones that are like more well-known. And I'd say it comes down to like maybe two or three, like maybe four or five, like really big metal printing companies. And the rest are kind of still early in development or much smaller market share. I think a lot of times the reason why people don't do things is because they, especially within hard tech or deep tech, they like try to commercialize existing research and then build their business model around it. So they're like taking an existing technology and like trying to solve a problem with it. And I think you have to kind of go in reverse where you're like starting with a problem and then determining, okay, what are like the constraints I need or like things I need to do to solve the problem and then go find a technology to go do it. So a lot of these efforts will be like, we commercialize this thing out of like the MIT mechanosynthesis lab and turn it into a printing company. That's why you see like all the metal printing companies like based out of Boston, because they're all commercialized out of that one lab. So I think that's like a huge reason. So they're not really thinking critically of like, oh, which technology do I use? It's like, this is what exists. We know it works. We're going to go commercialize it. And I try to think in reverse. Uh, so I'm curious, kind of how else are you thinking about this that you would say is, is different from, from how everyone else is thinking about it? So it just comes down to like, which things are you, I think engineers are generally just optimizers and people who pick constraints. So assuming your execution's like perfect or like, you know, good enough, the results come down to like, what did you choose as your constraints and what are you trying to optimize? So for me, what it comes down to is optimizing for lead time and minimizing that for a part. Uh, so lead time, what it means is like just being able to like, you know, start to finish, how long did it take to make your part? Um, including all the post-processing or like little steps you have to do, like fully functional, how long does that take? I think a lot of metal printing companies, they'll, they'll try to optimize for print time, which is not the same as lead time. And so an example of this is like one of the really popular uh, metal printing technologies is binder jet printing or like binder-based printing. There's a couple different variants of it, but the main idea is you basically have this powder material that's maybe 60 to 80% like metal powder and then you know, 20 to 40% some kind of binder material or polymer to hold that metal together. Um, the printer places the material in the shape of the object that you want to make, but it doesn't actually melt it. So that's considered the print time. Then you have to go to do um, your next few post-processing steps. The main one is debinding. So you have to remove the binder material. And then, so like, let's say you had a 10 hour, like a batch of parts that took 10 hour to print, 10 hours to print. You'd have maybe 30 to 40 hours of debinding. And then after that, you have to go through like another 30 or 40 hours of like centering the part, which is like melting the powder actually together after you've removed the binder material. So they've kind of like separated out all the steps in order to form the part. What it ends up doing is like, yeah, your print times look way better. Like it's like, you're like a hundred times faster, 20 times faster than other printing methods. But then you added, you just kind of like shifted the steps around rather than like solving anything. 
so they've kind of like optimized for the wrong thing. And so like, you know, if it takes like five or six days for your part to go from start to finish, like what's the point in that? Like, that's not that great. What you really want to do is like get to the point where you can print the part and it's done. Like you could start it the evening you leave the office in the morning, you come back, it's finished and it can be left unattended and you can just uh, trust that the machine will do its job. Yeah. We're very, very far from that. Why does this excite you? Like when you, when you're kind of thinking about what you wanted to do, why is this what you chose to work on and where do you see it going long-term? I really just like building things and making things. And I realize just how hard it is to actually build and make things, especially when you're slightly on a lower budget or you're trying to do a project. It's insanely hard. So I just wanted to make something that could help me make things um, and make it like way easier to make things and like remove all the frustration. And I would say that it's also something that kind of combined like not only what I want to work on, but also my like existing skill set. I have a lot of background with like firmware. Um, I spent some time in the machine shop. And so it's like a mix of like mechanical engineering and, you know, software and intellectual engineering as well. So like, I feel excited to work on it. And then it's also like, if you're making it easier for other people to make things, then I think that can produce like just a lot of progress in technology. And I'm always looking for more progress in technology. And there's this like scene out of Iron Man where like he just tells Jarvis to make the suit and then he goes off to his like fundraiser and like Jarvis tells him that the suit will be done in like five hours. Um, I want prototyping and manufacturing to look like that in the long run. I think that would be really cool. We're very, we're very far from that, but I think that'd be the dream. We have to start somewhere. I mean, if, if we could snap our fingers and have Jarvis assemble everything, like, well, I guess we'd find new challenges, but take the fun out of it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so I think that in the long run, what we'll start to see is like, at least with metal additive manufacturing, it'll be used for more and more applications and enable uh, different things that otherwise wouldn't be achievable with like traditional manufacturing methods. Like you can print different geometries that are more complicated. You can print larger geometries or uh, things that wouldn't be done cost effectively with other manufacturing methods. And so you're going to start to see like really cool things. One example is like SpaceX, actually their Dragon capsule is like they actually printed their rocket engines on the side. Um, the Super Draco engines are actually 3D printed and that like radically reduced the cost and they were able to like actually go ahead and consider that a, like a feasible design strategy or like I think that that's what additive manufacturing can do is like you can add complexity with like a little bit less of a drawback and so you can pursue cooler things. Similar to how SpaceX is unlocking a whole new you know realm of opportunities and getting things to orbit by driving the cost down uh, it seems like additive manufacturing will do something similar. It will help people to design things that they otherwise wouldn't have built or that would have been cost prohibitive to build. Is that the right way to be thinking about it? I think that's like one of the long-term effects we'll see. I think what it really does is I would say that with additive manufacturing, it changes like um, how much thought you have to put into designing a part. And I think that's a really big thing. We'll see cost reductions for sure in certain types of parts. I mean, this is kind of like a side tangent, but sort of related, like with a lot of the powder-based methods, you're maybe spending like 10 times more than like what the raw material might be, or maybe even a hundred times more. So a lot of times when you see like these things are done for aerospace, it's because only the aerospace industry can afford to make these parts. So it's actually still very, very expensive. What I'm trying to do is we're using pure wire or just like pure metal to metal wire to as like the feedstock material. So 
it'll actually be like far cheaper than your typical additive manufacturing process, just in material cost alone. Um, like the raw material costs on those are just way higher traditionally. I want to jump back to, again, kind of your long-term, like why this is exciting. So yeah, we get to the point where you can snap your fingers and Jarvis is building your, building your Iron Man suit. What, what else might be possible with Vucasan and being able to 3D print metal? Yeah, I think the huge advantage is just being able to iterate in your hardware really quickly. I think like one reason why we've seen a ton of progress in computing and, and especially in software is because you can like type your code and then like click run and then you'll know if it works or not. You don't even have to really know what's going on um, inside the computer. And so I kind of view additive manufacturing as like an abstraction layer of what you're doing. You won't have to think as much about the manufacturing process and you can kind of uh, design the part um, and it'll just come out. Um, we're not there yet. Uh, and I don't think any printing company, I think actually right now with additive manufacturing, it's like you have to think more about the part than you would with traditional manufacturing. But I think that's more of a long-term goal. What's so cool about code is like you can write something and then, you know, if you get like a bunch of users, you just deploy it on like Amazon's cloud and it just does everything for you. And I kind of want additive manufacturing to kind of serve the same way for physical parts um, where you can just like design your part and then deploy it. And then you have production coming in and that'd be really awesome. The more we can, we can make it easier for people to build the, build physical things or digital things, you know, the more progress we're going to make as a society because there's so many barriers to being able to do those, this and everyone kind of gravitate towards code because the infrastructure and the tools exist. Uh, Cause that's, what's been invested in for the last, you know, 20 plus years. And so we're, we're starting to see some of the investments in battery technology and manufacturing technology and um, all that stuff, which should hopefully lead to more, more development. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of view additive as like, like this crusade against stagnation, like outside of like legislation um, and just regulations and stuff. I think it just comes down to how do you make things really easy for other people to build with. And so, yeah, I, th I think that that's the way to go. A lot of times I think what happens with engineers is they'll start to see different trade-offs and start to realize like, oh, this is like slightly harder to do it this way. So we won't do it. And they'll think like in the short term, rather than thinking like, you know, how the design can evolve throughout, you know, the course of entire development cycle or several years. And when you do that, you end up with like optimization rather than like switching to an entirely new design. If you think about it, like, especially like with airplanes, like airplanes have gotten better, but we focused on fuel efficiency and like reducing like, you know, sound coming from, from airplanes. And so there's been a ton of progress there and it's been a hard problem, but it seems easier in the moment um, rather than going like and trying to build a supersonic jet. And so it's become super easy for people to rationalize, oh, we'll just kind of like make slight iterations on what we're doing in slight tweaks. And I think what additive allows you to do is you can, like the cost of starting a new design from scratch completely is far lower because you, you, you don't have to like dispose of all the same, like all your old manufacturing tooling. You can use the same machine to make something entirely different. Yeah, so I think that's going to be huge. It seems like because we find ourselves in the state where everyone's optimizing, things aren't really improving, but the, these companies that have had the, you know, the Boeings, the Lockheeds, like they have the infrastructure, they can't move their battleship very quickly. So it leaves room for companies like Boom to come in and say, hey, actually, we're going to do this differently. And it may take them, take them a while, but in the end, they're going to win out because they're going to build the better product, have the better technology because they decided to say, hey, instead of optimizing what already exists, we're going to go back to the drawing board and imagine like what things should be. 
it may be cool to see this kind of play itself out in all, all sorts of other verticals uh, as the industry leaders keep playing their optimization games to get more efficiency while the entrepreneurs like us can come in and say, actually, we're going to do it this new way. Oh, what do you think? I'll say that the larger companies like Boeing and Lockheed are, you know, they're kind of bureaucratic, a bit slower, but um, I would say that they usually just have like, it's not like, like dumb people work at like Lockheed or Boeing. It's full of a bunch of smart people too. They're just kind of like stuck in the system where, or culture where uh, slight tweaks are kind of emphasized and celebrated and specialization celebrated. Generally, if you're an engineer there, you might be like working on one part or like one software module for like one thing. And you don't really see much outside of the scope of like what you're specifically working on. And it's partially because it's just like so hard to like learn everything and be like a generalist or whatever. But I also think that when you do that, it becomes really easy to not be aware of all the other issues going on and like seeing the bigger picture, especially with these like larger companies where you have larger teams where each person's like working on like one specific thing. And I think what some company like Boom has is they've usually they're like a much smaller team and they're able to see all the problems. Like, like I'm sure like if you talk to an engineer at like Lockheed or Boeing, like they're going to talk about like, you know, their days are probably like a little bit calmer and they can start work on things when, when you talk to maybe like an engineer from boom, they'll be like, Oh, I know all these problems that are wrong within the company. And you know, you're able to identify them. And I think what happens is it's not like Lockheed or Boeing doesn't have the problems. It's just that uh, since the companies are so large, people are unaware of the problems, I guess on a, side note of that i think it's really easy to fall into optimizing like just the wrong things or like focusing on the wrong things like for an example if you're trying to make money doing travel one way might be to minimize the cost or like the your fuel consumption and try to cut down on costs because fuel is going to be the primary cost driver of your your aircraft um, flying in different routes and then uh, you can kind of get stuck in that local maximum of just trying to optimize that and then like boom decided no we're just they're going to have like environmentally friendly, friendly fuels or something. So it's not like they're ruining the, the environment, but um, they're entirely focused on increasing the number of flights so they can transport more people. And so each day you're running a boom plane, you're actually, I think you'll end up any, like you'll end up making more money that way. So there's like different things you can optimize. And you have to realize like at some point, if you keep optimizing the same thing forever, like their returns diminish and you have to switch to something new. And I think it's really hard for engineers to make that decision of switching to something new. I'm curious, what's with the, the Vukasan duck? <laughs> so the company is named Vukasan, but it's named after Jacques de Vukasan, who invented the all-metal lathe. But he's actually known for uh, something called the digesting duck. It was something that would, it was like this like robotic automaton that would like eat food or like eat food and then like poop it out. And that's what he became famous for. So I thought it'd be cool to like, uh, make the logo a robotic duck. And, you know, maybe one day what we'll do is with the metal printers, we'll go out and print a metal duck that does exactly that. <laughs> How are you thinking about growing the company and operating in a, in this kind of hard tech space? We don't have a lot of models to follow, right? SaaS is pretty straightforward. Consumer finding product market fit there's a challenge, but, you know, the growth tactics are there. Those playbooks have been written, but it seems like not so much in in kind of the spaces that, uh, you and I are excited about. Right. Yeah. I think with hardware, like a lot of times the business model is not suited towards traditional venture, but there are things you can do to make it similar to SaaS. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about is 
uh, doing maybe like a hardware subscription or like a lease where you kind of like pay for a yearly license to use the printer rather than buying the hardware up front. And so like one problem is if you buy, if you have to buy the hardware up front and pay for the full cost, what happens is that that customer is going to buy, buy your printer and you take all their money. But then the year after you, that customer is probably not going to buy the machine again. And so your ARR goes to zero every year. And like in a startup, you're trying to 10 X your ARR every year. Right. And so you're kind of like, like losing generally what happens with SaaS is like you sell subscription and then you can just sell more and like the revenue just compounds because your existing customer base is paying every year or every month. And ideally they're expanding too. Yeah. And they have to expand as well. But the idea is you're like, it's not like your feet are getting cut out from you underneath. Whereas with hardware, you're kind of like doing that exactly. If you sell the hardware up front Um, at the same time, what you're doing is you're increasing the barrier to entry. If they have to, pay full price up front. I think with the subscription, you can make it so that people can first buy or get access to machines that they wouldn't have had access to. And then they're also like paying you every year or every month. So you have this recurring revenue that compounds easier. Uh, and you're also establishing a, a more long-term relationship with the customer where they're, since they're constantly paying for it, you know, you kind of have an ongoing dialogue and it'll be easier to sell more printers in the long run because you have a closer relationship with the customer as opposed to just selling it to them once up front. Another model, I don't know, you may have thought of, thought this through, is like just manufacturing the parts yourself is kind of one one business channel. And then the other is kind of the, the leasing of, of the machines. Yeah, I think actually in the short term, we're going to focus probably more on a service uh, where a person can just submit the part. And, you know, we have like automated checks that check for manufacturability and then go ahead and print it and ship it at and then like try to undercut like other competitors. And then in a way, this is really good because it forces the company to use the machine and they're going to have, they're going to be so annoyed with like early versions of the machine that they're going to be the customers. Like it's much easier if you're like engineers and like product managers are also your customers. And we're that way we're forcing them to be the customer for the machine. And so they'll know everything wrong with it and what to fix. That, that makes total sense. I'm curious outside of uh, the 3D 3D printing metal. You spent some time at Hyperloop. Give me the rundown on that space. I've been familiar with the concept. What's going on? Where are things at in the Hyperloop space? And again, like this is assuming you're, you're still kind of following it intensely. Yeah, I'm still on the team. Uh, I've cut down on my time significantly. Like I used to spend a lot more time when I was in school and working there. I actually probably spent more time on Hyperloop in school. <laughs> but yeah, I would say the big rundown is that I think like it's building a pod is super easy. All the technology is there, like building something that can go 700 miles per hour. Isn't the issue. It's the infrastructure and like managing that regulatory environment. And so one of the reasons why I'm really excited for the boring company is they're focused entirely on infrastructure and they're not really talking about Hyperloop that much. It's an infrastructure cost problem. And it's like the reason why we haven't, we've seen like Hyperloop pods go, at the Hyperloop comp- the SpaceX Hyperloop competition, which was like a student competition, I think the speed record's around like 300 miles per hour, and it hasn't really gone past that. The big reason is because the track's too short. It's like really hard to, to reach that speed and stop within a mile. So Elon tweeted that the next Hyperloop competition, which isn't this year, but uh, maybe in a couple of years it'll happen. They're planning on making a 10-kilometer curved vacuum tunnel underground. And so we 
we decided we went ahead and thought even if it was let's say elon was being too ambitious and he could only do like five kilometers what speed could we hit and we found that it would be really easy to hit 500 miles per hour and break and we could probably go beyond that with that track length it's just really hard to like accelerate at two g's constantly like like once you're like around one g it's much easier so i think we'll see as soon as there's a longer track we'll see huge speed records broken and things are going to go faster how are you thinking about just getting to the, to that point where we have these sorts of technologies like the hyperloop and even more even like autonomous vehicles and all this stuff in the world of atoms like how do you think we get to that point where these are all commonplace and everyone's excited about them? Yeah, it's partially like a public sentiment issue. I think recently we've kind of been complacent with thinking, you know, the environment's going to, like, I think the environment's important to go get me wrong, but we've kind of thought, oh, the having a larger human population is bad. Um, you know, you shouldn't drive a car. You should walk. You should take a bike instead. You know, you have to get rid of your plastic straws and like use paper straws or like use your reusable grocery bag or something. And I think that's like the total, like, that's like the wrong way to look at it. That's like admitting technology won't improve. uh, It's not going to solve our problems. And instead we must minimize our lives and minimize the population in order to sustain ourselves. And what I really want to see is like, I want to see like 20, 30 billion people living on earth. And we should, that should be the priorities. Like how do we increase the human population and support them? And the only way to support that kind of thing is to, go and you know improve technology to sustain that ideally i should be able to do whatever i want and not have to think about the environment whatsoever because i know technology will solve all that for me like i should be able to indulge in whatever i want and not have to think about what to recycle and technology will just take care of all the problems with emissions or like energy like i should be able to leave all the lights on in my house and not have to think about the electric bill or anything Let's not try and patch fix these these things and kind of restrict ourselves. Instead, let's go figure out how to solve the problems that have been created. Oh my God, crazy wild concept. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think like a lot of people kind of just assume that there's this trade-off that exists when it doesn't really exist. You know, you can like live life and consume a lot and still have a sustainable environment and like not ruin the earth. And like, Tesla is like a huge example of this. Uh, you know, the, the electric car is generally better than most of your other cars. And, you know, it'll outperform most, most other like gasoline powered cars. It's a better car generally, better product. And yet it's environmentally friendly. We didn't make the product worse in order to be environmentally friendly. Like the Nissan Leafs kind of like the old, if you think of like the opposite view is like, we're going to make this like ugly looking car that's not fun to drive and it's horrible, but you know, it's good for the environment. It's like your Prius or whatever. Whereas The Tesla is like this cool looking car. It's fast. People love it. And it's still great for the environment. And I think we don't have to compromise. We just need to improve our standards and demand more. We've covered a lot of ground uh, around kind of different possible futures. I'm curious, what what excites you the most about the future? I think space is really exciting. I'm really excited for space and like just transportation in general. It's sort of like remote work, but the opposite. It's still in the physical world where like, I can live where I want and be anywhere else I want to be within 30 minutes or something. And so like my house isn't limiting the people or like where I'm living isn't going to limit the people I can meet or the places I can go. I think that's like going to be a really cool future, especially with Hyperloop where you could like live in LA and your job could be in San Francisco or the reverse. 
and that commute's like feasible. And not only is it like fast enough, but it's also cost effective. And so like, that's the future I'm really excited for. And then in the long term, like space will be fun. And I think actually in a way like space, in order to like establish like a city on Mars, we're gonna need all these transportation improvements and infrastructure improvements. Otherwise uh, it'll be hard to sustain that up, up there in space. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna challenge you. Sure. Why space? Isn't that almost like an escapist thing from, you know, the problems we have here on earth? This is a good question. I think that space is just a continuation of expansion and like, it'll be fun. Like, even if it's not useful, it'll be fun. I don't buy into this thing where like, we're going to like leave earth. Like, no, we should put like billions of people on earth and then simultaneously we should put billions of people on Mars and like several, you know, hundreds of thousands of people on the, or millions of people on the moon. And we should just continue to expand at the maximum rate. And by not going to space, you're expanding less. Well, I mean, we'll get there as long as we continue to get people to, to go build, right? How can people support you? Where can they find you? Any call to actions for people? I would say that if you're like someone who is, who either has used metal printers or works with in a machine shop or like understands like even just being a mechanical engineer, I always like feedback. So like just go on Twitter and DM me your complaints. <laughs> like, what do you hate about your job? It can be anything. It doesn't even have to be related to parts. It can be related to the design process or like your workflow. Because in the long run, I think that we'll kind of use printers as like peripheral and expand on the software and make things easier. The goal of Fukusan is to make iteration or iteration and hardware easier. And that not only includes just the printer, it includes your entire workflow. So just tell me what you're complaining about so I can think of things to help solve it. <laughs> and then website, Fukusan.com. Yep. Yeah, Fukusan.com. And then people can find you on Twitter at... Uh, Devolve Energy. Perfect. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Build the Future podcast. If you're building and want to get support, want to hear about certain topics or hear from certain people, shoot us over an email to hello at buildthefuturepodcast.com or follow me, Cameron, on Twitter at Cam Weesey and we'll see what we can make happen. That's it from us. Until next time, go build.